to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions, everybody. My name is Lee Johnson, and I am here with my two fabulous co-hosts, Dr. Rick Lee and Dr. Jason Reed. Today, we're going to be talking about community. But before we do that, let's get some drink orders and rants or raves. Let me go to you first, Jason. What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm going to have a mojito to utilize some of this mint that really grows like a weed in my backyard. (laughs) And I'm going to rave about I think you should leave. I Think You Should Leave is a sketch comedy show available on Netflix, written by Tim Robbins. Insanely addictive and insanely memeable. (laughs) A new season just dropped, and it's all very good, but man, once you get to the episode about the doggy door, it is one of the funniest (laughs) things I have seen in a long time. They just really know how to write a sketch, because a lot of sketches just repeat one joke again and again, and it just sort of ends. Yeah. I think you should leave is really good about taking the sketch into an entirely different, weirder direction. (laughs) I I think Key and Peele did the same thing, where like, it just gets weirder, and you should really check it out. What about you, Rick? I am going to have a gimlet, and today I am raving about the students in my philosophy of comedy class. I've taught this class a number of times, and right now I'm pushing to complete a book on it. And the students in this class, they've done the readings, they have interesting things to say about it. They've been also delightful human beings, which we all can't say about every class. (laughs) You both probably have this experience, but every class has a personality, and some classes are assholes. But this class is really delightful, so I'm raving about them. What about you, Lee? Well, today I'm going to have a fresquila. You might remember this from previous seasons. This is a drink I invented, which is tequila and fresca. (laughs) And I am also raving today. Well, aren't we all in a good mood? But I am (laughs) raving about one of my favorite podcasts, Smartless. Yes. So those of you who listen to Smartless already know that it is a podcast co-hosted by Sean Hayes, Will Arnett, and Jason Bateman. Each episode, one of them brings on a guest that the other two don't know about, and then they just have a conversation. But I'm not really so much raving about the podcast as about the new HBO or Max. I guess I'm never going to stop calling it HBO, but the new (laughs) Max documentary special called Smartless on the Road, which follows them as they took their podcast on tour and did live performances of it. It's, of course, just great to see the the behind-the-scenes relationship between these three guys, but I do have to say that there's something about that documentary that really does capture the very special kind of friendship and interpersonal dynamics that podcasting together creates. So I highly recommend both the podcast Smartless and the Max documentary Smartless on the Road. Now, I know that we are talking about community today, and I know that Rick has some ideas about this, so how are we going to talk about this? 
So toward the end of the 19th century, a German sociologist and philosopher named Ferdinand Tunis published a book that was really groundbreaking called, in English, Community and Society, Gemeinschaft und Gesellschaft in German. And the basic argument in the book is that there are two different forms of social groups. One he labels community and the other he labels society. And he gives some main distinguishing characteristics. So community is a group for him in which members are personally connected, sometimes even or often even related. They rely on and they nurture one another. And they also seem to be close in their worldviews and values. And then in contrast to that, society is a social group that is impersonal, that the members are disconnected, they are independent, and they don't share values. One way to think about this is a small town versus a big city. So immediately after he publishes this book, then a debate rages about whether one is better than the other, is community better than society. Tunis himself seems to use more preferential language in relation to community. Other people read this as if it was historical, that he's talking about the move from the Middle Ages to the industrialized world. But then, more than that, recently, it seems as if the word community has taken on a different meaning than Tunis outlined in his book. So we speak, for example, of the queer community or queer communities, the Latin American community, and other ways in which we use the word community like this. And I think in this sense, we're referring to a group that does have affinities in terms of something like interests and values, but the Latin American community, for example, is not constituted by personal connections. It's not as if every Latin American person knows every other Latin American person. It seems like Fortuny's community means something like, we don't do that here. And it can be oppressive or at the very least repressive. But with this new, more recent use of community, it's meant to be an association that is affirming and enabling. But that can also at times turn repressive as a community calls out one of its members, calls him a turncoat, or sometimes even worse. So the question for me is community, the appropriate ground of politics or menace to society? <laughs> I only read a summary of Tony's community and society, but my sense was that he largely talked positively about community. Could you say a little bit more about how it's also oppressive or repressive, as you said? The language he uses about community seems much more positive and affirming as if a society is an actual loss of the positive things that belong to community and he doesn't have a lot of positive things to say about society. Now, I will say this was a typical reading of his book that even in his own lifetime, he tried to quell. And it goes along with another typical reading of his book that he's talking about medieval communities and then society is modern, industrialized mm -hmm. social groupings. And he tried to deny that as well. But I think the overarching takeaway is that he sees community as nurturing Whereas he sees society in its cold, impersonal way 
to lack a human connection among its members and therefore can lead to a malaise. But on the other hand, it does seem to lead to a certain kind of freedom in that in society, we just let one another alone. Now, I don't buy his defense of that. I'm with you, Lee, that it seems pretty clear that he does have a preference for community. And by the way, this led to a huge argument in German sociology about community versus society. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you, but I think he tried to take back some of the preference he seems to exhibit for community. Well, I mean, it's certainly not hard to see how community, as he describes it, which he does seem to use the model of the family a lot, you know, uses the model of the mother-child relationship or sibling relationship. And of course, you know, all of us who are in families know that it can be a very (laughs) tight and nurturing (laughs) relationship and also quite oppressive (laughs) or repressive. So that to me doesn't seem unusual in itself, nor does it seem strange to contrast that with the modern sense of civil society, independent, self-interested people interacting in largely procedural ways, not, not with an obligation to nurture. Right. But the difficulty comes when you extend that one step further, because it's clear the family, and he argues this in the book, the family is constituted by blood ties, and there is an automatic interest that belongs to the family. We all got to eat. We all got to support ourselves. The values that are shared by a family emerge from those blood ties and the concerns of the household and so on. Now, what happens when a community is a grouping of families? If that larger group is still going to be characterized as a community, now we're talking about we all share certain values and interests. And that's where I say, isn't the principle, we don't do that here. And then that seems more straightforwardly repressive with maybe some less of the benefits that society provides. I mean, that's a kind of pessimistic phrasing, though, isn't it? So first of all, I want to say I want to kind of cut us loose from the Toonies anchor a little bit yeah. <laughs> so so that, you know, we can talk about this without necessarily referencing Toonies. But isn't it the case that we can talk about a community? And I sort of agree with this general sensibility of a community as a group of people that share some common notion of, well, the common good. They share values. They have a kind of solidarity with one another. And then to characterize that as this is what we do here or this is what we believe here or this is who we are here. It's interesting to me that you take the darker view. This is what we don't do here. (laughs) Which, of course, leads you to characterize it as repressive instead of nurturing. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Like, who are your people and why have they hurt you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess I wonder how much the two sides, the shared value and shared prohibition, are necessarily two sides of the same coin, right? Mm -hmm. Does every community have to have both that? And I know, Lee, you mentioned the family, and the family is both nurturing and oppressive. And I think lingering behind some of the stuff we're talking about is Hegel's discussion of the family and civil society and the philosophy of right. And one of the points that Hegel really makes is that 
because the family is defined by a lack of a clear sense of a distinction between your needs and my needs, right? We're all part of the same unit. And it's also necessary, right? Because you couldn't raise a child treating a child as an autonomous individual in a society. You have to raise a child by recognizing its needs are your needs. You know, you can't just listen to a baby crying and be like, oh, it sounds tough for you. (laughs) You have to kind of respond. But eventually that breakdown of the hard and fast distinction becomes equally oppressive as you realize that your parents are projecting their own Mm -hmm. senses of what you should become onto you. So there we see a clear case as to why the two sides of the community are indistinguishable. It's because of a lack of clear sense of a self-other distinction that we get both maximum nurturing and maximum meddling. But I guess I wonder, can we imagine a community that doesn't have this sort of dark underbelly to it, you know, that you often get in horror movie version of a community where it's like, they're so happy and caring for each other. And then later at night, you realize the bloodlust comes out and the sacrifice <laughs> has to be performed. <laughs> I mean, but isn't that exactly what civil society was supposed to be? Exactly what you described, a community that doesn't have both sides of these coins. Now, let's just put aside for a second that that's not what civil society is. And that it also has its own mechanisms of oppression and repression. But wasn't the idea that if we could form a community where there are certain procedural regulations about how we are responsible to look after one another or not, that that would be effectively a community without all of these daddy issues? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the ways I look at it is if a community is defined by sharing values and interests. What is the response of the community to a member who violates it? My argument would be the response is ostracization. I have in mind here the Scarlet Letter, for example, right? So Hester Prynne commits adultery and the response is that she's ostracized. A community can't really abide a contestation of values, at least not the most fundamental values. Whereas what civil society is supposed to do is to have procedures and institutions that precisely allow for and deal with the contestation of values and interests. Institutions like the law and courts and the police and other common institutions that allow for a contestation even of fundamental values because our relation with one another is not determined by those values. Okay, so I don't want to keep playing this on the one hand, on the other hand card, but couldn't you just as easily say that what you just described as ostracization could be described as a community member abandoning their community? So in the Scarlet Letter, for example, Hester Prine abandoned her community, abandoned the values of her community, engaged in things that, as you said before, we don't do here. Maybe all the time we don't necessarily have to stitch a Scarlet Letter onto your frock after you do that, (laughs) but that she made the decision first. It wasn't the community said, we're going to ostracize you. It was because you already left us, we're going to recognize that you're an outsider. I think in the Scarlet Letter, that might be the case. I'm wondering about examples in which an individual doesn't think they've decided to be outside of the community and yet suddenly finds themselves placed outside of the community. 
I could think, for example, of someone who grows up in a household that they find to be loving and nurturing and they provide shelter and clothing and food and so on. And then they come out and suddenly they're placed outside in a way that they didn't think they were choosing to be outside of that community. And so I think that there are often ways in which communities sort of police themselves primarily by means of ostracization, and therefore that doesn't allow for a challenging of the values. Because as long as I put you outside of the community, then I don't have to worry about whether my homophobia is a good thing or a bad thing. There are ways in which one could say, you know what, I don't like it here. I don't like what you all stand for. I don't like who you are. And so I'm leaving. And, you know, this is one of the questions that comes up in the Scarlet Letter is like, why did she continue to live on the outskirts of the community that has ostracized her? Like, why not go somewhere else? But I think that the oppressive arm of community comes down in this form of someone who thinks they're a solid member of the community and then suddenly finds themselves put out without making a decision to go against the values of that community. Yeah, I think this is a tough one because it's hard for me to imagine a situation, even the one you just described, in which one would find oneself ostracized from a community and be surprised by it without simultaneously realizing that one misunderstood what the community was, what the values of the community were. Yeah, but isn't this to say that one of the benefits at least on Hegel's argument, and maybe in general, one of the benefits of civil society is at least to promulgate the values, codify them, and make them publicly available to everyone, mm -hmm. usually in the form of law, whereas community always operates on this amorphous, implicit understanding in which I might not always be aware that in doing X, I'm violating one of the values that I didn't know the community had, and now I suddenly find myself on the outside. I can give you an example that I'll borrow from my friend and colleague Peter Steves, who in his book To the Things Themselves, and Peter is a communitarian and he and I have been having this discussion for 30 years, but the example he gives is a blackjack table. Now, many blackjack players consider the last person in front of the dealer to be in the so-called hot seat. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that they make decisions that fundamentally affect the outcome for everyone, which, if you're a statistician, is false, right? <laughs> it's just not the case that you are the one who has all this decisive capability in your hands. Now, he begins this discussion by saying, you never split fours. Everybody knows this. And the idea is, if you know anything about blackjack, if I have two fours, then I have eight. If I hit, I could get a 10 and have 18, which is a good hand. If I split fours, I'm always going to get a worse hand. And if I do that in the hot seat then people are going to start screaming at me. Mm -hmm. Now, if I walk in, I might not understand that I'm part of a community that now I only understand I was part of by being ostracized. So I think there are all sorts of implicit rules and there might be even implicit communities that might own me before I ever decide to be a part of them or not. 
right? Yeah, I think this is a good point. And I think it gives us a way to distinguish between the idea of a community that's based on the model of the family and an idea of a community that's somewhere between the family and civil society. Yeah. So, for mm. example, earlier in your introduction, you talked about the queer community or the Latin American community. Now, I think racialized communities or groups that we refer to as communities on the basis of race are probably closer to the family. So we're saying that there's some obligation here that you're born with or born into. And in that sense, I do agree with you that the problematics that you've been describing so far, the kind of amorphous nature of those values are enforced largely through ostracization. But the blackjack table or the queer community where you have more or less what we sometimes call chosen communities, like I decided to sit down at the table, right? right. That that's a little bit closer to, I think, civil society. So that what bonds people together in that community is something more like cooperative comradeship, right? Like a cooperative work towards some shared notion of a common good, although it usually isn't codified, for example, in laws and there aren't the gay police, unfortunately, and those sorts of things. Right? Although there are pit bosses, so maybe that doesn't work for the blackjack table. But would you agree with that? Well, yeah, but for me, that raises the question, does this mean either that a shift in the understanding of community has happened, or maybe even more straightforwardly, Tooney's definition was way too narrow. But secondly, it raises the question, and you pointed this out a while ago, Lee, that there is the common at the heart of community, right? Mm -hmm. And so the question always is, what exactly is it that we have in common, especially for these, you might not like this word, but like voluntary communities, mm -hmm. right? So in joining the community, do I know what exactly it is we have in common? I sometimes think about the treatment that the log cabin Republicans receive from the larger queer community in that in being Republican, by definition, they seem to have betrayed the community. And many people who express their belonging to the log cabin Republicans are ostracized by the larger queer community. And so I think some of my worries about community are still operative here because I wonder who determines what exactly it is we have in common and what that should mean for each of the members. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think another way to say that would be, is it that you join a community or is it that a community finds you? <laughs> right, right, envelops you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So one of the questions that seems to be implied in this 
new use of community to talk about specific different types of communities, a connection between identity and community. Mm. Going back to your example of the Log Cabin Republicans, there's this idea that to be gay is to belong to a particular community. And that seems to be, in some sense, a different factor than this voluntary and voluntary that we're talking about before or the unstated versus stated norms and rules does every identity carry with it a community, or is there a way to have an identity but not necessarily belong to the community to which that identity belongs? And here, it seems important to reiterate Lee's earlier distinction that it does seem like it's very difficult for someone to not belong to a particular racial community precisely because of the blunt and gross way in which we in the United States determine race. And so I might not come out and therefore not choose to join or belong to the queer community. But as Wanda Sykes says in one of her recent shows, I never had to come out as black, (laughs) never had to sit down my parents and say, mom, dad, I'm black. And so I think there is an important distinction to be made here. But still, oftentimes, for all of these communities, there are certain values, or one might even say rules, that if you violate them, the community's going to come after you, and maybe even attempt or successfully ostracize you. Man, you are really stuck on this ostracization. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if I can kind of tie that to what Jason was saying earlier about ways that communities are tied to specific identity categories, I think that maybe we can find a connection here. So one of the things that we could ask is, are communities more likely than not identified in groups that are oppressed Mm. or ostracized or separated from civil society in some way or recognized as separate from civil society in some way. And I think that's probably not a terrible way to think about communities. I mean, for example, we don't talk about the billionaires community or the (laughs) fresco lovers community. So maybe it's not necessarily the case that in order for there to be a community that it has to be an oppressed community, but it does have to be a community that civil society recognizes as something other than, for example, citizens with tastes, right? Or practices or even values in some cases. So, I mean, again, I want to say that that inclines me to say more that it's not that you choose to be a member of a community, but that a community envelops you, like it or not, it envelops you. Right, right. And what I find interesting about your point there, Lee, is that this non-Tunis, (laughs) non-Tunisian notion of community develops precisely in relation to feeling excluded from, at the very least, if not oppressed by the larger civil society in which I find myself. Mm -hmm. Then the community forms as a response to exclusion or oppression. You're just trying not to say ostracization, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I am. You made me all self-conscious now. And by the way, it's not the easiest word to say in the first place. It really isn't. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that there's a kind of resurgence in community and communities precisely in the moment where people 
to go back to Jason's point, because of the various identities they have or the various ways in which they identify, find themselves excluded and often oppressed by the police, by juridical institutions, including the law. And so it seems to me obvious that the LBGTQ plus community will identify themselves as a community and nurture and support one another when friend of the podcast Ron DeSantis passes the <laughs> don't say gay yeah. bill. And so I think there's a kind of transgressive notion of community in these senses. Yeah. And this is where I do think it is helpful to separate that sense of community, which again, I'm putting between the family type community and civil society, because the operations of that community, both the operations that form it and the operations that sustain it are different than both the family and civil society. And we can see a lot of this in, for example, Jody Dean's book, Comrade, when she talks about comradeship or in Nathan Duford's discussions of solidarity in their most recent book, that those kinds of operations are not entirely separate from the sorts of relationships and ways that we understand our common good in families or communities based on a family type model. And I'm including racial communities in that. But they're also, you know, similar, but not entirely the same as the kind of common good or social good that we understand in our operations as citizens or even as moral agents in a civil society. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there's a certain sense in which the existence of these particular kind of communities also attests, and this came up in your use of our favorite friend of the show, DeSantis, Rick, of a failure. <laughs> Can I just note, in case anybody just tuned in, he is not a friend of the show. <laughs> he is not a friend That was of sarcasm, people, if that doesn't come yeah. through the, the intertubes. He is not in our community. He has been ostracized. <laughs> and I'm happy to lead the ostracization charge. <laughs> Sorry, Jason, go ahead. That's all right. But a certain sense in which communities exist because civil society fails them. Mm -hmm. I mean, a better way to put it is that they reveal to what extent civil society is not as civil as it appears. Mm. It is predicated on exclusions or on its own sense of an unstated norm or mm. set of values. Because I think one of the interesting things about this whole debate, as we've been talking about, from this, both sides of the society community thing, the other looks like a kind of failure. Right. Because from the community side, if I treat the world in a civil society sense, like if I call the cops on my neighbors for having a large party, I have failed community or I've revealed a failure in community because I should go over there and say, hey, you know, like I'm your neighbor. <laughs> I should already, you know, know them and we should have a conversation, right? So that I'm calling the police on my neighbors suggests that the community has failed. But from the flip side, from the civil society side, all the unstated norms of community are a kind of failure. Like, right. no one ever told me we couldn't do this. What's the deal? Right. And the idea of having everything in writing seems to make more sense. But the existence of all these different communities suggests that civil society has more of a community sense than it would want to disclose. That on paper... The police are only about violations of the law, but as we all know, in practice, they also enforce their own community sense of who belongs here and who doesn't belong here. One of the things that cops often do is ask people why they're in this neighborhood. Yeah. They enforce community as much as they enforce society. So I think the worst thing 
you know, going back and forth, which is worse, community or society. The worst thing is a society that is itself enforcing an unstated idea of a community. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I wanted to say two things about that. First, your example of the house party is interesting because just a few days ago, my neighbor two doors down was having a party. You know, they had music going on. It was loud enough that I could hear it two doors away, but I wouldn't call it like loud music. And I really objected to their choice of music. (laughs) And that was the thing that made me contemplate, should I call the police? (laughs) But I realized that calling the police would be invoking social institutions to enforce my communal norms. Right. You're not in my community of those who like this kind of music. You're in a different community. You're in the Nickelback community. (laughs) Or the Dave Matthews band community. Um, And I shouldn't use the mechanism procedures and institutions of society to enforce what really is a community. But I wonder if it makes a difference, and I really do wonder this, to distinguish between the dominant class in a society and a community. Mm -hmm. Because Lee's raising the issue that we don't talk about the billionaire community One of the reasons why we don't is because in a capitalist society, somehow their interests are also our interests. And so Mm. they don't have to enforce by ostracization and so on. Once we talk about society, we have different ways to talk about groupings that are not quite community or might share some of the characteristics with community. Lee mentioned already the cooperative is calling something a collective different than calling it a community. I think, for example, about a labor union. A labor union really has only one interest and one value. And other than that, they're not going to ostracize members. And so I just wonder, once we start talking about society, do we also not need to have a more fine-tuned topology or grouping or a way of identifying various groupings of various kinds? Well, I think we've sort of skipped over one really important philosophical point here, and that is that the notion that civil society has of its members is ontologically different than the notion that a community has of its members. So civil society is built on the idea of individual members that are supposedly equal, have their own interest, are largely self-interested. And because they're driven by that self-interest, there have to be common rules or societal rules to allow them to be in a group. Whereas community, you know, as is probably most famously stated in the African Ubuntu ontology, to be an individual is to be with others, that I am only a person because of others. And so, you know, there's a fundamental difference in the ontology there of how civil society understands the members of a civil society and how a community understands the members of a community. So I think what Jason was saying earlier is really true, that the kind of the most dangerous thing is a civil society pretending to be a community. Or not acknowledging that it is a community. Mm -hmm. Or policing its members as if the members understand themselves in the same way that the civil society understands them. 
Yeah, that's right. You know, one thing that also belongs to civil society is economic relations. Mm. Those are not necessarily things that belong to the community, but they do belong to civil society. For example, when I go into the shop down the street to buy my groceries, my relationship with the people selling me the groceries is not the same relationship that I would have with people in a community. If that were in a smaller town, say Hooterville, <laughs> and the person selling me groceries was Sam, then now I have the personal relationship with him, which also makes the economic relation complicated. Sometimes it could make it better when Sam says, oh, I know you're good for it. If you don't have money, pay me when you get money. It could make it complicated the moment where I think Sam is trying to gouge me with his prices because he's the only grocer in town. I might want to slightly disagree here because, I mean, just etymologically, right? Of course, there are economic relations in the home. I mean, that's what the word economic means, right? Sure. So the real difference here is that the economic relations in a civil society understand the members of that society as separate and largely in competition with one another, mm -hmm. whereas the economic relations in a home understand the members of that community or that family or whatever, that hearth, understand their relations, their economic relations, as primarily constituted by the common good of the hearth, of the home, or of the community. Rick's making a face. He, died, he doesn't agree, but he can't quite ostracize me yet. <laughs> I mean, clearly, Lee, you're referring to the fact that the Greek term oikos, from which economy comes, means the household. I'm just wondering the extent to which the household is an economy. Does that mean that all of the members of the household have an economic relation with one another. Mm -hmm. I think I would need time to think that through. And one of the reasons I hesitate is because I understand I'm getting a lot of this from Thomas Aquinas on this issue, and I'm not a big fan of this. But for Aquinas, the relations of a household are all directed toward one, namely the head of the household. And all of the other members of the household are really only carrying out the interests of the head of the household. So, you know, the sons wouldn't be doing the things they're doing without the direction from the father, the wife without the direction of the father, the slaves without direction from the head of the household. And so I would need a moment to think this through. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the father wouldn't be the father, the sons wouldn't be the sons, the mother wouldn't be the mother if it weren't for those economic relationships of the family, of the household. So who they are as members of that community is because of the economic relations that constitute that community. So I don't know how we could say that they're not economic relations. They are. They're just a different sort of economic relations than the economic relations of civil society, which I can have as a father, as a business owner, as a person who buys Fresca, as, you know, whatever. Fresca, call us, please. <laughs> <laughs> And send some tequila. I mean, one distinction that might be useful in this conversation is Carl Pagliani's, you know, the idea that the household may be economic, but the economic relations are, in Pagliani's terms, embedded in a set of other sets of norms and values mm. and so on. Right. What yeah, Rick is yeah. talking about when he's talking about society, this would be where the economic are no longer embedded. You know, the idea that you can go into a store and it doesn't matter 
what I'm dressed like, how I act towards the people. As long as I have money, I can buy whatever I want. The only norms are, do you have money or do you not have money, right? Yeah. A certain kind of indifference that comes into being with the emergence of capitalism. It only matters how much money you have and your transactions are predicated on that, which in some sense would be the economy no longer being embedded in society. But one could argue the economy, and this is one of the questions I think that creates all these tension is, does a society of purely self-interested individuals, does it create its own kind of community? Does it need one? Is this what is lacking in it? You know, because to go back to Hegel, like the transition from family to civil society is only part of the story. Then you need the second part, which is civil society needs to recognize that we're not all self-interested individuals, autonomous and separate, that our needs in some sense are interconnected and the state comes in to provide that. And to some extent, if you wanted to be really Hegel for dummies, not saying our listeners are dummies, but the simple version is like civil society negates the family and the state comes along, which is in some sense the negation of negation. It has a little bit of that family feeling to it, right? That sense Mm -hmm. of commonality, Mm -hmm. but supposedly in preserving the autonomy that civil society offers. And so in Hegel's view, it seems that, going back to what we were talking about earlier, about the way in which society has a community and community has a society in it, that to some extent the best thing is a society which is in some sense also a community. Right. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, in communitarianism, broadly speaking, there is this idea, I think maybe it comes from Walter, I might be wrong about this, of quote unquote thick community, Mm. you know, just to add yet another community. (laughs) I had put what I was talking about, the community as kind of between the family and civil society and thick community would be between what I was talking about, the community and civil society. So like a more robust sense of the community. So first, I want to respond, Lee. I see your point about the economic relations of the family, and I think probably what a better term for what I was getting at rather than economic relations would be market relations Yeah. or economic relations under an exchange market. Mm -hmm. But I think that gets to the point. You know, Jason earlier, way back at the beginning of the conversation, talked about how from the perspective of community, society seems like a loss. And from the perspective of society, community seems like a loss. But I think what one loses insofar as one is a member of society is the commonness. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think then the so-called tragedy of the commons emerges directly from this, that I no longer care about or am concerned with preserving the water supply, preserving the ability of human beings to live on the earth. Other little things like that. (laughs) Yeah, other small (laughs) things like that. And so I think there is a difficulty in society for bringing back some of the common that is maybe a little bit more obvious in communities. This is the appeal for many people of communitarianism as a political philosophy, namely that it seems to be a way to take care of the commons as well. I think one way to understand Marx in relationship to Hegel, his first project was going to be a critique of the philosophy of right. That's the book we've been kind of sort of talking about a lot, is that once you unleash the atomistic, egocentric conception of civil society, you can't get back 
to that common, that you've destroyed it. You can't, mm. as I say in Maine, you can't get there from here. <laughs> <laughs> and that Hegel's whole project of trying to resuscitate a kind of communal belonging on the basis of civil society fails to understand the depth of the alienation that civil society is predicated upon. Listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. The point we left off at that Jason made leads me to think about what's going on in politics in the U.S. currently. I have in mind things like anti-wokeism, anti-LGBTQ laws that have been passed in many states, particularly those governed by Republicans, you know, from governor through the legislature. I think about Florida's banning of critical theory, including critical race theory and critical gender theory. I wonder, is this an attempt to demand a recognition that we don't share values in common, a recognition that then we have lost something and an attempt to reimpose a certain community against or on top of a society that allows people to feel aggrieved that they've lost their community because of society? I think there's two questions there, a question about motivations and a question about tactics. So I agree with your explanation of the motivations. I do think a lot of people feel like their communities are attacked by what appear to be the prevailing woke norms of civil society, Mm. but their tactics are the tactics of civil society. We're going to pass laws. We're going to go through the legislature. Everybody gets a vote. It's all fair here. (laughs) So however it comes out in the end is how it comes out. And we all have to play by the rules. Everybody gets a vote except for most of you. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that's an interesting point. And clearly passing laws and putting forward candidates trying to take control of the Senate and the Supreme Court and so on is completely operating within the realm of civil society. And yet it's doing so on the basis of values that seem to be community values. Right. And we can contrast that tactical approach on the basis of civil society with, for example, real ostracization, like what Governor DeSantis does when he puts a bunch of immigrants on a bus and sends them to Martha's Vineyard or something like that. I mean, that's more scarlet letter-ish right, than passing laws. Yeah, for sure. And that shows a certain notion of community that lies at the basis of this intervention in civil society using the procedures and institutions of civil society. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it also brings us back to the sort of dark side of community. I mean, some people want to interpret a lot of these conservative movements as an attempt to remake community, to want to have shared values, shared norms, shared sense of... 
But why are the shared values always such crappy ones? They're always <laughs> about excluding people, marginalizing. The companies that are accused of being woke, they're woke simply for the reason that they understand, as companies do, that money is money no matter who it comes from. And their indifference to particular norms of community have to do with wanting to pursue money. You know, given a choice between, I hate to say this, but given a choice between Disney and DeSantis, I'm on Team Disney. <laughs> <laughs> and that pains me to say that. I mean, I, I don't want to keep kicking a dead horse here, but just to go back to Rick's initial characterization of community as operating under the banner of we don't do that here, that sense of community which, I mean, I can't really call fake community, but any community that's based on we don't do that here, ostracization, is constituted so precariously that every member of that community has to be looking over their shoulder all the time. Right. That it does really feel like a fake community. And so if we want to talk about the other sense of community where it's like, this is what we do here. This is what we believe here. Come with me, comrade. Let me take care of you. Mm -hmm. And we're not primarily concerned about who doesn't belong or who we're going to put on a bus and ship to Martha's Vineyard. That seems like more of a real sense of community. And maybe it's just worth articulating explicitly from the left. Like what you're calling a community is not a community. Right. And Lee, you know, you were saying that I seem very negative about community earlier. Now I can pinpoint it. My worry is that lurking around the corner of every community is that exact precariousness. Mm -hmm. In a sense, what society provides that communities don't is, as Jason was pointing out, an impersonal relation with members such that I can't ostracize you precisely because I need your money, I need you to fulfill a certain job in our society, and so on. I might need your vote. <laughs> and I might need your vote. And therefore, I can't care about whether you're queer or African-American or Latin American. I need that kind of impersonality. And maybe there is a notion of community that... <laughs> You know, Al Lingus once wrote a book called The Community of Those Who Have Nothing in Common. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's, mm -hmm. Lee, what you're pointing to as a real community. We get together precisely because we have nothing in common and we're not going to hold one another to implicit, unstated, shared values mm -hmm. that will ultimately lead to ostracization. Well, we get together because we don't have everything in common. Not because we don't have anything right. in common, because our getting together is a forging of the common. That's a great way to put it, is that a community that forges the common in being formed is what you were calling a real community. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. It reminds me of a line from Samuel Delaney, the science fiction author, that I'm going to butcher and paraphrasing. But he says, like, in a small town, everyone is openly friendly, but behind that friendliness, there are a series of hidden resentments and so on. And that in a big city, everyone is brusque and indifferent, but behind that, there is a social bond that manifests itself in times of crisis. Mm -hmm. You know, then there's evidence that people in big cities, yeah, they don't have time for you when you're, like, walking down the street. And if you pause too long, someone's going to make clear that you're holding up traffic, but there's evidence that people in big cities show themselves much more sympathetic 
to absolute strangers in times of crisis than right. our image of society lets us know. I mean, it sort of makes sense to me that in a city, you don't have time for every little nicety, but that doesn't mean you've stepped outside of a community altogether. Right. You just have to kind of pick your battles. And I think crisis there actually is important because it's in precarity that we need to forge a common. Right. And that's why what I was calling a fake community earlier that is formed by the powerful on the basis of ostracizing people, denying access to whatever power or resources that they have, that that's not real community. That real community is always going to be forged on the basis of a kind of precarity and need for the establishment of a common good. And maybe that gets back to what Jason was saying in the previous segment about communities tending to envelop people who are oppressed or right. already ostracized. Right. And to draw that point with your earlier point, Lee, we come together as a community forging a common, but we don't have everything in common. That also means that I, at the same time, belong to multiple communities. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And in order to nurture and support and thrive those multiple communities, I do need something like the impersonality of society. Exactly. I need to let them be as the humans they are. All right, guys. Well, this has been a really fascinating conversation, and I actually think that we've made a lot of progress here. I know that, or I anticipate that neither of you would call yourselves liberals in the (laughs) classically liberal sense, but I'm wondering if you would call yourselves communitarians, and if so, why, and if not, why not? I mean, I wouldn't want to call myself a communitarian, but Fred Jameson makes this point that Marxists have more in common with communitarians than they do with liberals. Mm -hmm. I agree, but I think the big difference, as I stated earlier on the Marxist point about that, is that the material conditions of our social relations matter. And the attempt to just try and impose community on a society that is in some sense structured around impersonal and different market relations is always going to be just that, an imposition. It's always going to be artificial And maybe, as we were talking about earlier, only becomes real when there's a crisis in those market relations. I'm thinking about Rebecca Solnit's book, A Paradise Built in Hell, where she talks about, like, contrary to the reigning Hobbesian imaginary, in moments of huge crises, like the San Francisco earthquake, post-Katrina, New Orleans, people actually do the opposite of what we're led to believe. They actually come together and help each other in all sorts of ways. But I think that's because there's a breakdown in those market relations, which have to be seen as already hostile to the emergence of anything other than an artificial community, a community that's really more of a marketing subset or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I do think that to be serious about community is to be serious about the material conditions of community and recognize that community is not just a moral norm. It is about producing a particular kind of sociality, which can't be separated from, as I keep saying, material conditions. (laughs) So that's my take. Rick? So my first response is that often when it comes to traditional concepts in philosophy that have been critiqued in ways that I think are valid critiques, and then someone comes along and wants to rehabilitate the concept, but in a new way, I often wonder, like, what's the benefit of that? Why not just, you know, use a new word or a different (laughs) word? 
And so part of me wants to say, it seems like we've come to agree on a certain really essential notion of community that is productive, that is empowering, that is enabling, and doesn't have the downfalls of other traditional notions of community, or as Lee would put it, fake communities. But I still worry about ways in which the common, even if it is forged, could often be turned into a cudgel. Mm -hmm. Then I wonder, wouldn't a different form of association be better? But lastly, I think my most important problem with calling myself communitarian is, as far as I understand it, communitarians not only argue that there is no human that comes to be and comes to be who and what they are in isolation from others, which I also agree with, but that they come to be within a community that is constituted by values and interests. And that recognition of community should be the foundation of our theory of politics. And that's the Mm. moment where I want to separate myself out from communitarianism. Mm. So good perhaps as a strategy and as a descriptive term, bad as a political theory. What about you, Lee? Well, I think prior to today's conversation, I definitely would not have said that I'm a communitarian for you know many of the reasons that we've already mentioned. I worry about the way that communitarianism tends towards homogeneity and conformity and therefore can tend to be repressive. I also, and this is kind of a tic-tac-y point, but I've largely thought of communitarianism as an oppositional discourse, so that I think it's very helpful in criticisms of liberalism's emphasis on individualism and autonomy, but that it lacks a kind of political clarity (laughs) in and of itself, and that has always made me a little hesitant about it. All that said, in this conversation today, I believe I might have just backed myself a little bit into a kind of (laughs) communitarian position. I do think that we've articulated a thicker, more robust sense of community that, you know, it would take me a lot longer to really hash it out. But it's something that, you know, I wouldn't buy the T-shirt, but I would say I went to the concert. We're all a little bit communitarian now. (laughs) I'm communitarian curious. Well, one thing that this bar community will not tolerate is people staying here after last call. While we're ordering our last drink, though, if I could just say to our listeners, this is episode 99 of this podcast, which means that in our next episode, we are going to be celebrating a milestone in the history of hotel bar sessions. We will be recording our 100th episode, and I find that a little... Hard to believe. I'm excited about it. It's been a really fantastic journey. And yeah, I hope everyone tunes in. We've got some interesting conversations lined up for that episode. And we're all, you know, showing our age on this podcast now by <laughs> by even saying that. But... Get off my lawn. <laughs> all right. We're not being ostracized, but the, the norms and values of civil society are being invoked. And so we got to get out of this bar. Great conversation, guys. Looking forward to talking to you next time for our 100th. We're so old. (laughs) Bye. Bye.